Hey guys, uh, welcome to RUF. It's really good to see you. My name is Chris. If I don't know you, let me get where I can see a little bit better. Um, a special welcome to you if you've never been to RUF before. This is one of your first times. It's really good to see you guys. I'm also um, just feeling right now that some of you, this will be the last time I ever talk to you. And uh, that makes me sad. Uh, but I guess I should get used to it because it's going to be my everyday life, or every year life at least. Um, anyway, my, my name's Chris. I would love to get to know you. I know it's the end of, this, of the semester. I know it's a hard time. It's a busy time, so I really appreciate you guys being here, and it's really good to see you. I would love to get to know you. Other people here would love to get to know you, too. But if you're just kind of figuring this stuff out and you just want to pop in, check it out, and leave, that's cool, too. Uh, tonight, we're going to be in the book of First Timothy, which is uh, sort of in the back half of the New Testament, if you want to turn there. Um, since, since we finished our series last week in Ephesians, I wanted to take the opportunity just to get back to real, just sort of basics, what the gospel is all about. Um, the other day I was talking to Kayla Chapman. Is Kayla here? Oh, hey, Kayla. Right in the front. Good. Um, I was talking to Kayla. We were in Crossroads, and we were chatting. This isn't going to be embarrassing, I promise. And um, I hope not. Not for you. Uh, we, were, we were chatting, and we were talking about just some stupid stuff that I did in college. Just like some really dumb stuff on my graduation night. Um, but anyway, uh, let's just let it suffice that it was this dumb stuff. And so I was talking to her about my stupid college self. And she, she asked me, she said, how are you, you, and an ordained minister? And, um, and I think what she was saying, if, I, if I'm right, was like, isn't it amazing that, like, Jesus, like, calls these people that are, like, really stupid and foolish? And she was, because then she was like, oh, no, no, wait, but, like, I mean, how am I who I am and still a Christian, too? Like, she just kind of backtracked a little bit. Um, but it was a good question. Uh, and, I, and I actually, I, w- I thought about it. I was reflecting on it over the next couple of days, just, just wrestling with this reality that, like, I don't know about y'all, and I don't know if you're a Christian or not, a, a lot of you, um, but I... I feel like a mess and uh, a lot of the times, and I am a Christian, I don't really feel a lot like I'm growing. I don't really feel like I'm just like making all these strides for Jesus and becoming a And I just feel like a mess. And like most of the Christians I know are a mess too. And like, I love y'all dearly, but like the more that I sit down with you, the more I figure out that y'all are a mess too. And um and, and so as I, was, I was, I was wrestling through that and just, just thinking about that, I kept coming back to this question like, how does someone know that they really know Jesus? Like, how do you know that you really know Jesus? I don't mean like that you believe that Jesus was a, was a person or that like you're sort of like Jesus. But I mean like, how do you know that you know Jesus in the sense that like you're trusting him you're having life in him, you're growing in him. Like, how do you know that? Like, how do you know that you have the real thing? Um, and I came to this passage, and I'm convinced that the, the surest way for us to know that we know Jesus is that we resonate with this passage in 1 Timothy. And this becomes more and more sort of the mantra of our life. So let's read that and uh, then we'll, we'll kind of dive into it. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor. That's why I turned to it because I was like, what the crap am I doing? Um, 
Kayla just called me out. Uh, so I turn to this letter. So this is, this is Paul's words to Timothy, but this is also the word of God. So listen up. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Let's pray, ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, it, it reveals so much to us about ourselves that we desperately need to know. And Father, it, it reveals so much to us about you, um, who we desperately need to know as well. Thank you for it. Thank you for the reading of it. Lord, would you bless the teaching. Open our eyes and our hearts to this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. So, if you want to know if you really know Jesus, if you're growing in Jesus, if you're knowing him in a real intimate sense, this verse, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost, will begin to resonate more and more and more within your heart. And really all I want to do is say, look at what Paul is saying about himself. Look at why we struggle to agree with him, that we are the chief of sinners, that we are the worst sinner and then see what it does for us if we, begin to, if we begin to buy into that, how that changes us. So Paul's, this is Paul's gospel pers- uh, perspective. Uh, he starts out and he's talking, and it's a little bit confusing. Okay, so look, if, you, if you're looking on the screen or if you have your Bible, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. At first it's kind of like, I'm thanking Jesus because he realized that I was awesome, and he used me because I'm such a faithful guy. But then he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And if you look at those words, uh, faithful from verse 12, and unbelief at the end of verse 13, I know I'm kind of geeking out a little bit here. Um, in Greek, those are the same word, but if they're opposites, right? So... Um, so faithful is the word pistos, and unbelief is apostia. So it, it, it's kind of like the opposite. It's faithful and unfaithful. And basically what he's saying is, I thank Jesus. He appointed me to his service. He, um, he judged me faithful, even though I was unfaithful. Jesus said I was faithful, but I knew I was unfaithful. It would be like, I know a lot of you guys are asking me to pray for you so you get a summer job. And you want to make your application look good, write with the right kind of pen and all that kind of stuff. Um, but imagine that you are hiring people for a summer job. And you have a stack of applications of just nice-looking people like y'all filled them out. And you flip through until you find like a Wendy's napkin wedged in there. And written on crayon, just sprawled on there, is, I hate this company, and I hope you die. And you were like, this is it. This is the one. We have to find the person that wrote this napkin. 
because he's going to get this job. Uh, that's basically what Paul is saying. Jesus judged me faithful even though I was unfaithful, even though I was an opponent. I don't know if you know much about the Apostle Paul. Before he became a follower of Jesus, he helped kill followers of Jesus. Okay, That was what he was all about, helping to, to, to end, to squash this Jesus rebellion. But in case we weren't sure exactly what Paul thought about himself, he says in verse 15 very clearly, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Okay, he wants you to listen. This is going to be an important you know, indicator, as in saying, this is worthy of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul is literally saying, Jesus saves sinners. I know because I am literally the worst sinner. I am the worst person in the world. Okay? What Paul isn't saying is, I sin more than everyone else. Because there's actually other places in the New Testament where Paul's like, you should follow me as I follow Jesus. You should make your life like mine. Or he'll say, I have a clear conscience when it comes to Jesus. But here he's saying, I am literally the worst person, the worst sinner, the chief of all sinners. Paul is intimately aware of who he is, and he's amazed that Jesus would save him. And just the fact that he's saying, I'm the worst of all sinners, is the result of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, is penetrating into Paul's heart. And it's breaking it up, and it's getting inside. And the surest sign that you will know that you're starting to get your hands around this whole Jesus thing, like I'm a Christian, and then I'm like, what does that even mean? I have no idea. The surest sign that you will know that you're starting to get this Jesus is that you start to see yourself like the Apostle Paul saw himself. That you have a growing conviction that, yes, your sin is the worst. Okay? As they say, little sin, little Jesus. Big sin, big Jesus. And you begin, because you, you start to get bewildered, right? It's confusing that the more that you learn about your sin and the lower your esteem for yourself, the more that you love Jesus. Because you're like, why? Why would he ever do this? Why would he ever save me? Uh, now, so, some of us in the room really resonate with that first part. Yeah, I'm the worst. You, I mean, you haven't gotten to the, but Jesus loves me part. You're just like, I'm the, whatever, because of what you've done and what people have done to you, it's an easy sell for you to go, yeah, I'm the worst, and I am unlovable. Okay? I know for a fact that that is some of you, uh, that, that you think that you're disgusting, that no one, let alone the God of the universe, would ever love you. And this verse, the, the Apostle Paul is saying, you are wrong. Because this God, this Jesus, loves messed up people. He loves the worst. And could you come to that, Jesus, with your doubts, with your baggage, and find acceptance there? But my guess is that most of us aren't there. Most of us are like, okay, if you're a Christian, and I'm not assuming that, if you're a Christian, you think, okay, I know like sort of theologically or mentally, I agree, right, with Paul. Like I would say, yeah, I'm the chief of sinners. But really, 
I don't really believe that I'm the chief of sinners, right? What keeps us from agreeing with Paul that we are the chief of sinners? Um, Well, probably most of us can think of someone that's worse than us. And I'm not talking about like Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, you know, Sam Walton. Um, So it was a Walmart joke. Um, I don't really believe that, by the way. I shop at Walmart. Um, Most of us probably even just have a friend that we hang out with a lot that we would say is worse than us. That they, like, as far as the behavioral data goes, they do worse things than me. And it's true. The worst person, sort of just the data set, bad behavior in the world, I can guarantee you is probably not in this room. Probably the worst, morally speaking, person at Appalachian State is not in this room. Okay? I, want, I have no idea what they're doing right now. Maybe they're killing kittens or something. Um, so, if it's true that we, and, and we do, if it's true that we all know someone that's more immoral than us, okay, right? That's, that's worse behaved than us. How can we possibly say, I'm the chief of sinners? Okay, you, are you tracking with that question? How can, how can I be the chief of sinners if I know this other person does worse things than me? Um, I want you to think of the person, a, a person that you know in real life, that is, you would consider a worse sinner than yourself. And I'm not trying to like, tell you like, to disengage from your spirituality, but seriously, someone that like, behaves more poorly than you. Okay? Think of a person. And I want you to think of the worst thing that they've done that you haven't done. Okay, so you tracking with me? Could be a family member, friend, Sam Walton. Um, and think of the worst thing they've done. Okay, now, I want you to ask yourself this question. Why have you not done that thing? Have you ever thought about that? Why have you not done that sinful thing that they have done? And do you have it? What kept you from doing that? Um, The prophet Jeremiah, as you're thinking about that, the prophet Jeremiah says this about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it is exceedingly wicked. Who can understand it? Okay, some of you guys might have seen the No movie. I haven't seen it, so don't spoil it for me. I don't want to know how it ends. And... um, that was funnier than that. Um, but in the Noah story in Genesis 6, God sends a flood on the earth because the intentions of everyone's heart was evil continually. And when he saves Noah and his family, he ensures that the intentions of people's hearts will continue to remain evil always because it's inside Noah's heart. So the Bible saying the heart is wicked totally all the time. So, what keeps you from sinning? If the Bible says that your heart is totally wicked and corrupt all the time, yet there are other people that do things that you haven't done, why? Why haven't you done those things? Because God's grace has restrained you from doing that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. God's grace does many wonderful things okay, for people that are believers and people that aren't believers. 
Okay? But one of the chief and most amazing things that God does in his grace is he actually keeps people from sinning. If God were to remove his hand, as it were, from our lives, it would be a mess. Because our hearts, which are wicked continually, would act wicked continually. God kind of puts a restrictor. I don't know if NASCAR fans are in here. God kind of puts a restrictor plate on our heart so that we can only go up to such a degree. And when someone does something terrible, the way the Bible would say it is that God has removed his hand from them and allowed them to do that. If left to our own devices, per the Bible, we would constantly abuse, hurt, take advantage of everyone we know. If we had an opportunity to sin, we would take it every single time. Um, Sometimes God restrains us by, you know, we've heard the Bible, and so we go, oh, the Bible says that's, that's wrong, I shouldn't do that. Okay. Sometimes that's how God restrains us. Sometimes God restrains us by giving us a conscience that won't allow us to do something. So... We would think about doing this hurtful thing, but then like our sort of, we don't have the stomach for it. Like we just feel like we couldn't do it. Like there's something holding us back. Or sometimes God reminds us of the consequences of our sin. Well, if you do that, if you have an affair, it's going to hurt your family. Or if you cheat on your taxes, you might get found out and you'll have to pay a bunch of money to the IRS. Or if you do that, you'll have to go to jail. Regardless... God restrains us. So if you've seen someone do something that you haven't done, or you know someone that's done worse things than you have done, the only reason why you haven't done that is because God has kept you from it, or you have not found yourself in the right circumstances in which you would do it. Okay, I had this mentor, and he shocked me the first time he said this. Because it was so right, he said, Chris, and he, was, he says this to me all the time, you know, you're just one or two sets of circumstances away from doing that thing that you just thought you would never, ever be able to do. If the circumstances presented themselves for you to do that, and God did not restrain you, you would do it. That's who we are. So when we sin, we are responsible. When we don't sin, God is responsible. You understand that? You tracking that? When we sin, it's our fault. When we don't sin, it's God's grace. Okay? Uh, Wendell Berry, who is a a great author, Christian man, writes very poignantly on just the simple Christian life. He has a great little poem. He's kind of this guy where it's like, you would want him to be your grandpa. He's like the nicest guy. Um, But he has this short poem. It's called A, A Warning to My Readers. Listen to this. I think it's really good. Do not think me gentle because I speak in praise of gentleness or elegant because I honor the grace that keeps this world. I am a man as crude as any, gross of speech, intolerant, stubborn, angry, full of fits and furies. That I may have spoken well at times is not natural. A wonder is what it is. He's saying... If there was times that I said something beautiful or helpful, it was a miracle. Okay? God's grace is not just this thing that saves your soul. It is this wonderful outworking of what he's doing in the world, to, even to restrain people from hurting each other that don't 
know him. And so to use another great line from Paul, where then is our boasting? Where is the ground that you have to feel morally superior to someone? Because if you didn't do what they did, the only reason is because you didn't have the opportunity to do it, okay? Or God restrained you in some sense. Um, If God was to remove his hand, it'd be a mess. Paul believed that he was capable of any sin. And it amazed him that Jesus loved someone like that. That Jesus loved him. And when we start to believe that we're capable of sinning, it changes us. And, and let me show you how. Um, so, so how does that change us? Some of you guys, I've drawn this little chart. I love to draw this chart. So if you meet with me, I'll probably draw this chart. Um, because it's really all I have. Okay? And uh, I don't know where stuff is in the Bible, so I have to draw this chart. Um, I'm just kidding. I know where some stuff is in the Bible. Um, when someone becomes a Christian... Okay, if I've drawn this chart for you, you'll know the answer to this first question. When someone comes, becomes a Christian, they hear good, bad news and then they hear good news. The bad news is, what is the standard that God demands for you to have a relationship with him? Anybody? Perfection. Perfection. Thank you, Blair. Uh, the standard that God demands, if you want to even be on good terms with God, is perfection. Okay, Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Or unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Okay, and that's the bad news. Because, you know, like, you're here, and God's standard is up here. And it's really hard to get there. It's actually impossible for you to get there, because you're not perfect, right? Just by definition, no one in this room is perfect. It's almost like a happy mantra we have now. No one's perfect. And God's like, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> except me. Not me. No. Um, But the good news is that Jesus spans that gap, right? We're here and God's here, but Jesus spans that gap for us. He takes away our sin and he gives us his holy life so that we can be in a good relationship with God by having Jesus's righteous, perfect life. So Jesus takes your sin and he brings you to God. And as we grow in that, which is called the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, we realize more and more and more that the distance between us wasn't this. The, the, the distance between us is astronomical. that We can never even picture it on a sheet of paper. That God is way up there and we're way down here. And that means one thing. Jesus, I thought that Jesus loved me this much. But Jesus loves me that much. And as we grow, we start to, we start to realize that our sin just wasn't as bad as we thought it was. It was way, 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 way worse than we thought it was. It's so much worse, but the love of Christ to us is so, so, so much better. And it's amazing, and it's confusing. And as your heart begins to get gripped by that, you start to change. Um, And you realize that anything that you've done good is owing to God's grace anyway. And look at at verse 16. This is how it changed Paul. He realized that 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 gap was huge. He realized he was capable of anything. And he says in verse 16, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. When you begin to get gripped by that, 
that indeed you are the worst of sinners and Jesus came all the way down to you. You become a welcoming presence to show people that Jesus is patient. That Jesus loves bad people. Y'all, religious people are like are the worst. I, okay? I am one. Okay? I get it. But as you own your helplessness without God's mercy, others will be drawn to your Jesus. That is the only... You might be wondering... I talk to people about Jesus all the time and just no one really cares. Um, until they see you broken in front of Jesus helpless and needy, and saying, my Jesus is patient because he loves me. Only, in, only at that point will they be drawn to Jesus. Only at that point will Jesus seem attractive. Uh, will Davis Campbell, I don't know if anyone knows that name, and this is a really generic sounding name anyway. Uh, he died last year. He was a Baptist preacher from Amity, Mississippi. I think that's how it's pronounced. He was ordained to be a preacher at the age of 17, by his family and his tiny little Baptist church. Maybe some of you guys grew up in a church like that. Um, but in his church, the Pew Bible was a King James Version with the KKK logo on it. Okay, so deal with that. You're like, man, I thought my church at home was complicated. Um, but somehow, by the grace of God, Will Campbell found himself as one of the leaders of the civil rights movement in the 1950s. Okay, that's where he came from. He, he, would, he, he somehow, by God's grace, avoided racism, ended up... Do you guys know what the Little Rock Nine was? It was... Wow, everyone does. It's amazing. Um, it was a group of nine African-American students that were the first to segregate, uh, to integrate a, a segregated school in, in Arkansas. He was one of the four people that escorted those nine students to that school. Um, he was the only white person that was there when the uh, Southern, Christian, Southern Christian Leadership Conference was started by Martin Luther King Jr. He was the only white person there. Okay, that was him. He received constant death threats from other white Southern people like himself. He was the victim of white mob violence. Okay, but as he was a he was literally a civil rights hero and leader. Um, as he continued to labor in the civil rights movement, he started to realize something about his own heart. And that was that he had started to legitimately hate the white redneck bigots that were oppressing African Americans. And that he actually became very easy for him, for him to hate them. And he found out how, how easy it was to, by being on the right side of an issue, get away with feeling more morally superior to other people. And he knew that wasn't right. Because he has this great line about... Uh, if you can't love the oppressor and you can only love the oppressed, then you're doing something less than Christian. Um, so what he started doing was literally ministering to the Ku Klux Klan. Okay, he was simultaneously part of the civil rights movement and ministering, like doing weddings, doing funerals, christening people's babies in the KKK. Okay, that was his life. Uh, and he became really good friends with a man named Tommy Terrence. Tommy Terrence went to prison... Uh, he took a bullet from the FBI because he was a machine gunner for the KKK as a young man. And he got shot and arrested because he was trying to bomb a Jewish merchant's shop in, in Alabama. And uh, Will Campbell visited Tommy Terrence in jail, in prison. And he befriended him. He ate with him. He prayed with him. 
He shared the gospel with them, and Tommy Terrence became a Christian. Okay, because the great irony here is that the KKK thinks that they are Christians, right? Um, and he became, a, he became a Christian. He renounced his racism. Actually, Tommy Terrence is right now the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C. Um, literally was in prison for trying to bomb something for the KKK. Um, so if, if you didn't hear anything else tonight, that's the grace of Jesus. But listen to this quote by, by Reverend Campbell. There are two bad words in this quote. There are two bad words in this quote. Um, He's talking about 2 Corinthians 5. God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself, not counting their sins against them. He says there, that's what it's all about. You can read it there or in Mark or Matthew or over in Luke. But what it all means is so damn simple. We are bastards, but God loves us anyway. We're forgiven, and if we can somehow manage to get hold of that fact, we can find the power to go and do likewise. Go and hate no more. Go and kill no more. Old Tommy Terrence got his mind around that one, and if the rest of us could do the same, but of course we don't want to do the same, because it would change the way we all do our business, so we keep fooling around with all these false messiahs. Will Campbell loved the oppressed African Americans in this country during the Civil Rights Movement, and the KKK, because he did not think that he was any better than them. He knew he needed the grace of God in Christ just like they did. He knew he did not deserve God's grace, and it made him able to love people, really love people, not just people that was easy for him to love. So how do you know whether you really know Jesus? How do you know whether you're really growing in Jesus, to the degree that you are gripped by the mercy of God shown to someone like you, then you will have joy and assurance and happiness and comfort. And to the degree that you understand that God showed his mercy to you, the worst, you will be able to love other people and really accept other people. I don't know why it bothers me so much that Jesus loves without distinction. I don't want him to love without distinction. I want him to draw a line right where I draw it. But he doesn't. To the degree that you're gripped by that, you will change. And is that not better than whatever it is that you're working for? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we want to know you. We want desperately to be set free from comparing ourselves to other people and feeling better about ourselves for a moment. Because it's only a moment. And then it's gone. And then the comparison starts again. Lord, would you convince us that we are capable of anything, but that you love us, that you smile, that you dote on your people. Lord, draw us to you, whether it's... um, For the hundredth time or for the first time, would you do it by your grace and convince us that you're good? pray in Jesus' name. Amen.